Well, let's pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. We are thankful to you, Heavenly Father, for your blessing upon us that we have such a Saviour, such a one who loved us. And as we come to what we might call holy ground today, thinking about the Lord Jesus, please grant your blessing that we might see him and his love for his sake. Amen. We return to Matthew 26 this morning and these verses before us, bringing us one more step closer to Easter and to the cross. And though the cross stands as the climax and the pinnacle of all that would happen to Jesus, yet before the cross of Jesus came for him the garden, which in many ways is what we might call holy ground. The cross of Calvary may well be the mountain Jesus had to climb, but the garden was within sight of the summit. And the passage tells us that at the foot of this pinnacle, Jesus saw the full reality and consequence of what that would involve. Just behind him was confusion, denial, failure and betrayal. Just ahead of him were lies, mockery of a trial, suffering and death via crucifixion. But most of all, the wrath of God upon him and separation from the Father. All the Gospel writers in their own way take note of the importance of what took place in the garden. The hour of Jesus' struggle that was far more intense and consequential than any other hour of his life. And the prayer that came from his lips is far more revealing than any other of his recorded prayers. We're told in one of the Gospels, Luke's in fact, that at the end of this struggle in Gethsemane an angel came and ministered to him. And that too, I think, signals something of the gravity of the event that's described for us this morning as though his heavenly father knew the need of his son to receive that supernatural comfort because this was definitely no ordinary hour. Well, there are many matters we could focus upon this morning, but I want us to think of three aspects of the heavy load he chose to bear in the garden in this hour, his hour of great trial. First, in verses 36 to 41, we ought to note the sorrow of Jesus. Matthew says that he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed at the end of verse 37. It's unusual language concerning our Lord. Rarely are we given in the Gospels an insight into this kind of emotion in his life. The words that Matthew uses here are very strong words expressive of deep emotions. It's interesting that he describes this event in these words. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And what is interesting about how Matthew records this is not that he was implying that was death itself that was troubling Jesus. It wasn't meant to be a description of the cause of his trouble, but the extent of his trouble, that he was troubled to the point of death by the burden upon him, and not because of death, but because of judgment. Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing that really caused him to shrink back, and that was the experience of being separated from his heavenly Father. Now there is an invisible but straight line here from Cal the garden to Calvary, a road that leads into the abyss and into the deepest darkness. We see its beginnings here, but we do not see the end of this road. 
because it leads us to the sheer darkness of the afternoon that would follow when Jesus would cry out that he was forsaken as he bore the fullness of the wrath of his heavenly Father, not for any sins of his own that he had committed, mind you, but for the sins of those he came to save, the elect of God. And it will be by his death, nailed to a cross as our representative and as our sin-bearer, that he will save them. The second Adam in the place of those for whom he has come to save. And as Jesus will bear in his own soul that wrath of a holy, righteous God, his own Father in heaven, then on the cross he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But he does it here in the garden, doesn't he? It's my father in verse 39, again in verse 42, my father. But on the cross it will be my God, my God, as though the consciousness of his own native sonship with his father has been obliterated on that cross, so that all he is conscious of on the cross is being the sin-bearer and no longer even reassured of his father's love, compassion and care. And I think something of the reality of that road that he's about to take that leads into the abyss of Calvary begins to dawn on the consciousness of our Lord here in the garden and it causes him to tremble and be exceedingly sorrowful and troubled. But while there was this vertical aspect of this sorrow to be dealt with, he also had to deal with the horizontal aspect of sorrow, that which Peter and James and John and the other disciples caused him while he stayed awake and kept watch, his disciples fell asleep and abandoned him. And what you see in this text is their weakness, which is obvious but seems to be magnified. Now some might dare to say quietly under their breath here, if, if only I had been in the garden, if only I had been underneath those olive trees, if only I had been there as the moon shone down on that Passover, I'm sure I would have remained awake but sadly on second thoughts maybe not isn't it so that the disciples are merely a reflection of the weakness of our own hearts how many times have you and i resolved to give ourselves away to jesus to consecrate ourselves more to read his word more to pray more or to do something more or something in a better frame of mind and we've kept it up for maybe a week or two or a month and then our lives become but a string of broken promises. Were it not for the obedience of Jesus, we would be altogether lost. So note that Jesus expresses here something of his disappointment, but it's never accusatory. It's tender. It's difficult to know how to read verse 40 accurately in public when he comes to the disciples and says, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Do you read it with a stern, accusatory voice? So, couldn't you watch with me one hour? Or was it instead a voice of understanding and compassion? So, could you not watch with me that one hour? And everything that we know about Jesus as he deals with his disciples reeks understanding and compassion because he deals us with us always in grace and always in love. And so at last, when he comes to verse 45, he says to them, 
sleep and take your rest. Sleep on now, understanding the heaviness of their eyes in that garden in that early morning. Perhaps we are all too conscious, you and I, that we've disappointed our Lord. The promises that we made at the beginning of January and now it's April and many of them have already long been since broken and forgotten and recorded perhaps only in a diary or a journal somewhere and we read them and we feel that guilt. And isn't it something that's expressive here of the very gospel itself, that there is forgiveness with him, that in Jesus we find the truest expression of compassion and mercy, even in the midst of his sorrow. Then second in this text, in verses 42 to 46, we see something of the submission of Jesus. There's a decided resolve in the consciousness of the Lord's servant as he here battles with what lay before him and comes to this conclusion. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done because Jesus had come to do that which Adam had failed to do. He'd come to provide obedience. He'd come to fulfill the covenant of works. He'd come to do that which you and I had failed to do and will always fail to do. He had come to walk down a pathway that you and I could never have taken. He'd come to give his life as a ransom in the place of sinners. He'd come to be the sin bearer. He'd come in order that the covenant curse of God might fall upon him, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. So what you see here is the resolve of the servant of the Lord. I come to do your will, O God. Yes, your law is within my heart, said David in Psalm 40, speaking of the Messiah. And here in the very garden of Gethsemane, the soul of Jesus is steeled for the resolve and determination to do whatever it is that his heavenly Father requests of him. Was there ever a saviour as great as this? Was there ever an obedience as full as this? Was there ever a resolve greater than this resolve? And yet doesn't Matthew give us a picture of Jesus not often given in any of the Gospels? Verse 39 portrays him with his face on the ground and then crying out to his heavenly father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now at the risk of saying something banal in the context of something that's so profound, it says something to us of enormous pastoral significance, that it's not wrong in and of itself to struggle with the will of God. It is not wrong in and of itself to come before God and to say, Father, if it is possible, if it be your will, let there be some other road down which I can go. I say that because it's sometimes represented as being of a higher plane of spirituality. If you can pray a prayer that does not contain the words, if it be your will. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Because all prayer must be in accordance with the will of God. And here is the prayer of our Lord. And he is saying, if it be possible. Now notice something else here as we examine this. How did our Lord deal with this sorrow? Aren't we reminded here that Jesus gathered friends around him to pray? And therefore that the value of prayer that even he found in that awful hour is foremost? You know the hymn. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? 
You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that was as true for the servant of the Lord Jesus as it is for you and for me. It would be so easy, I think, to portray some other route for Jesus to follow here. But instead, he had this extraordinary determination to gather up his resolve and put aside his emotions and work through all the consequences of that to which he had agreed as the servant of the Lord in fulfilling terms of the covenant of redemption. That here he comes now before his father and, as it were, casts everything before his father. And as he does so, and as more and more of the awareness of what lays before him dawns upon him, you see something of the emotional response to that in terms of the sorrow and the trouble that was so very evident and manifest that all of the gospel writers record it. If you ever find yourself at wit's end, you find yourself weak and a broken vessel, knowing not which way to turn, except that there before you be a road down which you would prefer not to go, then here is Jesus, who is our pioneer, who has blazed a trail through the most arduous and difficult of pathways, knowing a sorrow the like of which you and I have never experienced or will ever know. The writer of the Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling, with the very feeling of our infirmities. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then third, in verses 47 to 56, we also meet the betrayal of Jesus. Further on this point, note also the last verse of our section this morning in verse 46, when he said to the disciples, and this is in all of the narratives, in all of the Gospels, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it's been pointed out that the verb that Jesus employs there is the same verb that occurs at the end of John 14. This verse occurs when Jesus says pretty much the same thing. But in John's Gospel, there are three more chapters before they actually arise and go anywhere. And commentators on the Gospel of John have often wondered what was the meaning of this expression, rise, let us go, when that was the case. And here it is in Matthew, the same word employed again in the garden. Rise, let us be going, a word used in the context of a military battle. And it's as though Jesus is saying, my time has come now. The time of battle is at hand now. The time for sleeping is over now. And the time for engagement with the enemy, in terms, first of all, with Judas, but behind Judas, the arch enemy of Saul, Satan himself. And Jesus is about to go forth to meet his enemy, just as in the wilderness temptations at the very beginning of the Gospels. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness so that he will face Satan in God's terms, not Satan's terms. Do you see what's being alluded to here? It's just a little glimpse. But here is the conqueror. Here is the victorious one. Here is the knight in shining armour come to rescue a damsel, his own sheep, that need to be rescued. Here he comes marching forth from the garden to meet his enemy on the plains of battle as a conquering hero, as the Lord of glory, 
hinting to his disciples as he does so that they too will be caught up in this battle. That just as the master suffered and was prepared for battle, so must his disciples. We must not be surprised to find out that if we belong to him, then we are in the midst of that battle still. A spiritual battle against an enemy so foul and so wicked that even though he knows his doom is certain, he still vents his rage against you and me, his children, Christ's children. But we are in him. We have died in him. We have risen in him. We have ascended in him. And now we sit in heavenly places in him. And being in Christ will be enough. And remaining in Christ will mean that we too will be victorious over the enemy and of death. William Hendrickson says about these verses that we are told about three things. The onslaught of the treacherous, that is Judas the betrayer and the multitude that comes with him. We're also taught about the defeated, the defenders. We see Peter and the disciples fail to restrain Jesus' arrest and eventually flee, just as he predicted. But we see the triumph of the captain, Jesus willingly embracing his betrayal. He embraces his arrest that he might sacrifice himself on our behalf. End of quote. It's interesting to know that in the garden that night, as far as we know, the only thing that Jesus prayed for was that God would spare him the cup of his judgment. That is, Jesus perceived that he was to bear the sins of the world in accordance with the Father's will and submission to that will. But if it is possible that the Lord will allow that cup of judgment to pass, is what he prayed. But nowhere, as far as we know, does he pray that Judas would not betray him. Or does he pray that his disciples would not desert him? And how Judas betrays is, of course, as we know, by a kiss. It was a kiss that identified who they should arrest. And, of course, this was before the days of any media. And so it would have been very easy for even a relatively well-known person like Jesus, not to be recognised by those who came to capture him. And he had to be identified. And this is exactly what Judas did. But the way that Judas does it emphasises the bitterness and the despicable nature of the crime of his betrayal. Hendrickson has a beautiful phrase to describe this. He says, They came with torches and lanterns to seek out the light of the world. They came with swords and clubs to subdue the Prince of Peace. The wickedness of it is very apparent. An armed guard captured the Son of God when it was he who made the stars and put them in their places. Never has there been such irony and yet such ignorance on display. And Jesus does something absolutely mind-boggling in verse 50. He basically gives permission to Judas and the mob to arrest him. Friend, he says, do what you have come to do. Just go ahead and get it over with. Jesus is giving permission to Judas and his captors to arrest him. This again shows the sovereignty of Christ. His character, his resolution and his majesty are brought into bold relief against a backdrop of this wicked betrayal. And then we're told at the very end of verse 56, right as he's being led away, perhaps in chains, all his disciples flee just as he told them that they would. 
One of Paul's trustworthy sayings in 2 Timothy is this, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Judas denied Jesus and was thus denied. And it's tempting for us to lump the disciples in the same lump with Judas because of their desertion. But these weak and well-meaning disciples were not denying him here. They were simply faithless. And if their actions teach us anything, they teach us not to trust in ourselves, in our own sweet frame, but to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Well, was there ever a scene like this? And can we ever really take it in? Can we ever really fathom that here in the garden Jesus won the victory of the cross? For it was here, surely, that Satan's doom was sealed and our forgiveness was secured. Yes, those things would happen on the cross and all for our sake, but more than this, for the love of his Father and out of willing obedience to his plan, it was here in the garden where Adam failed that Jesus won. It was here in the garden that Jesus proved that he was the faithful, obedient, victorious servant and son, willing to obey the Father's plan and drink the cup to the dregs. And why? Because he loved the Father. And as Psalm 40 reminds us, as the writer to the Hebrews repeats for us, his delight was to do the Father's will. So again the hymn asks us, When did such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? This is holy ground. Come to him. Come to this one with thankful hearts and remember him who gave himself. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, what can we say to you as we read of this holy ground? We need to humble ourselves and remind ourselves that all that happened on that fateful night happened for your people. It happened to Jesus but it happened for us, that we might benefit from his loss, that he who endured such at the hands of sinful men might give us such freedom and such forgiveness. As we think, Lord, of the garden that led to the cross, so help us to remind ourselves that we too are his children, and by grace and through faith, that we might also have to face an awful road as we follow him. Thank you that he's gone there before us and his presence will ever comfort us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Grant us these things, that we might put our hope and trust once more in him and magnify him for the wonder of the salvation we have received. In his name we pray. Amen.